0: Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your word. We pray now for your presence to be among us, that we would hear from you. We would see what you have to say. We'd understand it. We'd believe it. Pray that you would come to us and be near, that you'd comfort us who are afflicted and distressed, and bring your nearness to us who are Uh, in darkness. Help us, O Lord, on account of your word, to sense the goodness and nearness of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to these two quotes from two giant men in history. The first is from a man named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. To this day, he is quoted to, referred to, cited by preachers everywhere. He was a megachurch pastor before there were things like megachurches. Thousands came To hear Spurgeon preach weekly, he pastored four decades, and listen to what he says. He says, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. It's a surprising quote from the Prince of Preachers, a man who struggled with chronic depression his whole life. In fact, listen to another quote by our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, who needs no introduction. He wrote, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. You see, what both of these men suffered from is what we are talking about today. Our topic for today is depression. And we're doing that because we're continuing our sermon series looking at Five of the top things that people in the city of Philadelphia search for when it comes to the Bible. Their questions when it comes to the scriptures. And so we said that our city has asked, gone onto their computers, onto their search engines and asked, what does the Bible say about friendship and love and forgiveness? And today we continue that and ask this question. What does the Bible say about depression? Depression. Our city wants to know, and you can imagine then the hurt in our city if this is one of the top searches in our city. What does the scripture say about depression? Now, I recognize that even that word, depression, brothers of ours like Melvin and Sanju would tell us, would teach us that they who work in mental health would teach us that this word, depression itself, covers a range of experiences, ranging from people who are deeply discouraged. Two people who struggle with clinical and chemical issues, people who need medication and the whole spectrum. And so we're thankful to God for physicians and psychiatrists and counselors and, 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 and the rest, none of which this morning I concede to you I am. And so our aim this morning then is not to diagnose or cure depression, but to answer this one question. What does the Bible... And therefore, what does God say to those who are living in the darkness? Say to those for whom darkness has become your closest companion. And to answer that this morning, we are in Psalm 88. So if you've got a Bible, would you open it to me? It's in the middle of the book. It's on page 494. This is the passage Dennis just read for us. Psalm 88. As you turn there, let me tell you that Psalm 88 has been called... The darkest of all the psalms. Uh, One commentator called it the saddest prayer in the entire Bible. And perhaps as Dennis read it for us, you could feel why that was so. And Psalm 88 is particularly this way. What makes it unique? What makes it different from all the other psalms? What makes Psalm 88 particularly dark and especially sad is that this particular psalm never turns. Did you hear that? Did you hear it as Dennis read it for us? It never pivots. What I mean by that is just about all the other psalms, with the exception of Psalm 39, just about every other psalm of lament at some point turns, right? It descends down, but then at some point it comes up. There's a a pivot, there's a turn. It starts out dark, but somewhere along the psalm there's a crack in the door and a stream of sunlight comes in, just a glimmer of hope. For example, let me read you just verse 1 of Psalm 13. This is a psalm of lament. And Psalm 13, 1 begins this way. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Right? That's how the psalm starts. In the dark, in the valley, down low. Right? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? But then, as the psalm continues, as it progresses, it climbs so that the psalm ends this way. 13, 5, and 6 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you feel the, the turn, the curve, the pivot? It starts with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But it ends with, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, in all the other psalms of lament, either God delivers, or God answers, or God rescues, or God shows up, or somehow, at least, the psalmist himself has this bolt of renewed confidence, this renewed strength, this renewed faith. Somehow, somewhere, the psalm climbs and ends on a positive note. It's with all of them, but not here, not Psalm 88, because Psalm 88 is a tunnel with no light at the end of it. Psalm 88 is a dark cloud with no silver lining. Psalm 88 is a song played only in minor chords. It's a painting with only dark brush strokes. Psalm 88 begins in despair and ends in despair. It begins in darkness and ends in darkness. In fact, did you hear as Dennis read, in both the English and the original language in Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is literally darkness. You think of that. What kind of prayer, what kind of song, ends with an amen and ends in darkness? And and you think of that. Remember with me that the book of Psalms is the prayer book and the song book of God's people. This is their hymnal. When they needed to sing as they gathered for church, somebody would open up to the psalms and they would sing. So can you imagine being in church and the worship team up front leads you in a song where you get to the end of the song and literally the last line of the song we sing together in church is the only friend I have is darkness. I mean, can you imagine a song? What a friend we have in darkness. That's the the psalm. That's the song, right? Right? It's, it's unsettling. It's unnerving. And so you ask yourself, what is this song? What is this prayer? What is this psalm doing in the Bible? And you ask yourself, moreover, what hope can possibly be gleaned from a psalm that has no hope? What can people in darkness, in depression, learn from such a depressing psalm? And the answer is, surprisingly, a lot. Because when we allow the message of this psalm to sink in... Psalm 88 can become for us, as one author put it, a nightlight in the darkness. That's what this psalm can become for us. You know, what should you sing when you're miserable? Psalm 88. What should you pray when you're depressed? Psalm 88. You see, here it is. Here is a song for miserable Christians, and here is a prayer for depressed believers. And so out of the many things that we could see in this psalm, I want to show you two things. That Psalm 88 shows us one thing we should know and one thing we should do when we find ourselves in darkness. When we find ourselves in darkness, whether it's right now in the season, whether it's coming, when we find someone we love in darkness and we want to care for them, one thing we should know and one thing we should do. Here's the first. Here's the first thing I want you to know from Psalm 88 when you're in darkness. This psalm invites us to first know that even godly mature believers get depressed. Did you hear that again? This psalm invites you to know, to take in a deep breath, to be relieved by, to have permission to know that even godly mature believers get depressed Let me say it quite plainly right at the start. If you think, if I think, if we think that somehow godly mature varsity Christians are above all that, if we think that godly mature believers are somehow immune from melancholy, from bouts of depression, from feelings of despair, then we would be thinking something that is quite frankly untrue and therefore very unhelpful. In fact, look at this psalm. In fact, look above verse 1. You see that little tiny script? The heading of the psalm tells us some information. It tells us that this psalm was written by a man named Heman. Now, let me give you some background on Heman. Heman, if you looked in the Old Testament, Heman, the writer of Psalm 88, was actually the grandson of a prophet named Samuel. One of Israel's great prophets, the man who literally poured oil and anointed Israel's most famous King David, Samuel's son's son, is this man named Heman. And moreover, the Old Testament tells us that Heman was appointed by King David to be the worship team of Israel. So he was part of the leaders of those who led God's people in worship. He was a skilled musician. In fact, we read of the different instruments that he played. When David led the Ark of the Lord back into Jerusalem, Heman was at the front, blasting the symbols together. He was leading the procession. This is who this man is. Moreover, the Old Testament tells us that not only did he write songs for Israel, if you go from Psalm 42 on, a bunch of the songs are written by a group of people that Heman is a part of. And not only that, the Old Testament tells us that God exalted this man Heman, gave him 17 children. 14 sons, 3 daughters, all of whom became trained musicians like himself, all of whom served in the house of the Lord in singing like their dad did. Moreover, this man was prophesying by the spirit through song. If nothing else, if none of that impresses you, he wrote scripture. And so that means he's at a level of spirituality that you and I never will be at. He's an author in the Bible. What I'm trying to communicate to you is Heman has a impressive resume. He's a grandson of the prophet, the choir leader for the king. He's written scripture. He's prophesied by the spirit. Even in this psalm, you can see his devotion to God. You can see that in the depths of darkness, he prays. Do you see that in verse 2? Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Now, listen, what does all of this mean? This means that you can be a believer, be godly and mature. That you can pray and pray and pray and pray and still everything in your life go wrong and at the end of it all still be in the dark. That's what it means. It means that you can have, like Heeman, your quiet time every day. You can pray and yet you get to the amen, you say your amen and nothing changes. You're still in the dark. You're still nothing about. Your circumstances Changed. The darkness has not lifted. This man, this mature, godly believer, never missed his quiet time. Never missed church service. Was a true and genuine believer with nothing sinister, nothing secret going on in his life. And yet his life was falling apart. And he wasn't immune from it. And he wasn't immune from depression. In fact, just listen to his depressed cry. In verse 3, his soul is full of trouble. His life is near the end. In verse 4, he feels like God has left him for dead and forgotten about him and cut him off from his hand. He has no strength. I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. In verse 8, he's all alone. Everyone shunned him. He has no relationships. He's shut in and can't escape. In verse 9, his eyes grow dim through sorrow. He's cried so much he cannot see anymore. All the way until it descends to 18 where he says, darkness is the only friend I have. And the implication there is what? Darkness and not God is the only friend I have left. My only companion left in life is darkness. And friends, that's especially what makes this psalm all the more painful and his experience all the more unbearable. It's not just that things around him, the circumstances of life are dark. What makes it even worse is that things within him have turned dark. God has turned off the light in his heart. It's pitch black in his soul and he's groping in the darkness and he can't see God. And he can't feel God. And he can't sense that God is near. God feels a million miles away. You see, that's what makes it especially hard. It's one thing to be able to say with David in Psalm 23, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear an evil for you are with me. You hear that? It's one thing to be able to say, I can go through any valley, no matter how dark, if I just know that you're with me. If I have a sense of your presence, if the light of your countenance lights up my valley, then I can go through any valley. But it's another to be in this pit, and to search and grope for God, and to call out for him, and heaven remains silent. And the clouds not part, and no sunlight shines down, no voice from heaven. There's nothing Nothing. The absence of God. Darkness. And in that place to be forced to cry out as he does in 14, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you throw my soul away like it's nothing? And why do you hide your face from me? Hear what that means. You can pray and pray and pray and pray, and it does not make you immune from depression, from the grips of sadness, from the prison of melancholy. In fact, church fathers long before us, Christians long ago, said this in the Westminster Confession. This was written in the 1600s. They described the Christian experience this way. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways, one of being by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and allowing even those who reverence him to walk in darkness and have no light. You hear that? In the 1600s, centuries ago, Christians before us described, you know what Christians will often face? They will face that their faith is being shaken, their very assurance of God rattled, even temporarily lost. And one of the reasons being because God for some reason removes the light of his face And though you have sincere devotion and reverence from me, you'll be left in the dark with no light. Psalm 88 is telling you, hear me again, you need to know that you can be mature and godly and a believing Christian with nothing secret and nothing sinister, no sin growing in the dark, and you can find yourself in a deep pit so dark that you find yourself saying, darkness is the only friend I have. Now you would ask, How could that possibly be helpful? And the answer is, it is. It is in part simply because it helps to set our expectations right about what life in this world really is like. You see, the Bible, though it's giving you a hard word, is giving you a helpful word because it's telling you this is what life is really like. I heard one preacher, he made this simple point. He said, it's sort of like if you were about to step into a room and someone told you this is a honeymoon suite, you might go into the room and go, this place is a dump. If you were about to step into that same exact room and someone told you this is a prison cell, you might go into the same exact room and go, it's not so bad, I could live here. Right? If you think about it, it's the same exact room and yet your expectation controls your experience of that circumstance. And so here's what the scripture is saying. If you go through Christian life thinking, because I'm a Christian, really, really bad things won't happen to me then you'll be crushed when really, really bad things happens to you because really, really bad things happens to us all. And faith in Jesus does not make us immune from the really, really bad things of life. The Bible is doing you a favor to say, in this broken world, you will face really, really bad things. There will be darkness. It will be dark for a long time. Like you won't feel like it's ever going to quit. And the Bible is setting your expectations so that you might not be surprised and naive. We would want to protest and say, doesn't the Bible say that all things work together for the good of those who love him? One preacher simply pointed out, do you notice implied in there is that you are susceptible then to all things. Yes, all things work together for the good of those who love him. But the implication is you too are susceptible then to all things. All kinds of really bad things. God has a way of working it together. But that means you might face all kinds of really bad things. And he does not promise in that verse that he will tell you within a week, or within a month, within a year or a decade, or even within your lifetime how he will work those things together for good. You might go to your grave never seeing how he resolved it all out. And so this scripture is saying to you, really hard things happens to really godly, believing, mature Christians. And you, like Peter says, do not be surprised, brothers, that sufferings and fiery trials of all kinds come into your life. The first thing you should know is that even mature, godly believers get depressed. That's what you should know. So if that happens, here's what you should do. When you find yourself in darkness, second, here's the simple thing I want to counsel you towards from this psalm, when life is really hard, you should tell God that life is really hard. You know what believing, mature, godly Christians do when life is really, really hard? They go to God, and they tell God that life is really, really hard. Would you look again at this psalm with me, and if I asked you, how would you describe this man's prayer? You got 18 verses. If I had a whiteboard up here and I could just write down your answers, how would you describe this man's prayer? Would you listen with me again as he talks to God? In verse 6, he turns and he starts using you, right? So now he's speaking to God. And so you can picture Heman with his fist towards the heavens, perhaps with a pink finger pointed to the sky. And now he says, you, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Do you hear him? Do you see his fist? Do you feel his finger to the heavens? Look what you have done to me. And then in verse 10, he begins to question God. He's got some questions to ask God. So in 10, he starts, let me ask you, God, do you, do wor- do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You hear what Heman's asking? He's saying, God, let me ask you a question. Do you have a choir in the grave that I don't know about that sings your songs? Do you have skeletons in coffins that worship you that I'm not aware of? Do the departed rise, and is there some kind of concert of praise from you from the land of the dead that I don't know anything of? You see what he's saying to God? Don't you see, God, you're the one that's going to lose out on a worshiper if you let me die. I'm here. I'm more than ready to praise you because I don't know of praise that comes from the graves. And I'm more than ready, but why won't you save me? What do you profit from letting me die? What do you gain from letting me fall into the pit? I'm more than ready. Isn't worship of you what all of life is about? And I'm ready to, but you won't rescue me. So let me ask you, is there a choir somewhere that I don't know of? Do you hear his questioning of God? And after all that questioning, nothing. No answer. No deliverance. No clouds part. No stream of light. No sound from heaven. And so even after all his questioning and all his protests and all his agony with no answer from God, he descends even further to verse 15. And he says this, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You know what he's saying now? You know what, God? This is nothing new. This is how you've always been to me. You know what? You've never been there for me. From my childhood on, I could trace from when I was a kid on, you've never been there for me. This isn't something new. From my childhood on, you have never been there for me. And now what he's beginning to do is he's reading the story of his old life in light of his present darkness. His present darkness is clouding how he sees God over him his whole life. You see, God feels to human more like a foe than a friend and he's letting God know it so much so that his last verse, 18, is simply to say, you know what, God? Even the darkness is a better friend than you are. Even the pitch black is a better companion to me than you are. So I'd ask you again, how would you describe this man's prayer, this depressed believer's prayer? What words would go up on the whiteboard? I'd imagine some of us would say, it's honest. We'd say yes to that. And some of us would say, it's raw. And then we'd add words like uncensored. We'd add words like unfiltered. If we grew up the courage and nerve, we might even say words like, it's irreverent. It's exaggerated. It doesn't seem respectful. We might end it all with, but it's real. You see, this is the real Heman praying to the real God. And he doesn't hide behind theology. Listen, there's no problem in his theology. I can tell you this. If, if Heman was praying around us, if we let you pray out loud today at the end of this service and one of you stood up and prayed like this, I can promise you everyone around us would grow very nervous. We would be very unsettled, and suddenly everyone would look to the pastors and go, when are you going to talk to that person? And let them know they can't say that. They can't talk like that, at least not in public. They can think it in the privacy of their own hearts. They can't say that out loud. We would pull them aside. We'd give them a book. We'd give them some theology and say, God doesn't forget people. Let me tell you about the omniscience of God. You you want to hear something? Heman has no problem with theology. He wrote half the Psalms from 42 on. You can go read them. His theology is perfect, but right now, what he knows in his brain isn't what he's feeling in his heart, but the real heart is going before the real God in real prayer, and so he's letting God have it, and so I'd ask you then, what does it say about God that he didn't reject Psalm 88? What does it say about God that a prayer that would make you nervous if you heard it doesn't make God nervous? A prayer that would offend you if you heard it said it out loud doesn't offend God. What does it say about your God? You should think of this today. What does it say about your God that he didn't reject this prayer or reject the person who prayed it? Moreover, what does it say about your God that he recorded this prayer and put it in scripture? Or if you want one more step back, what does it say about your God that his spirit inspired this prayer? All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does it say about your God that his Holy Spirit inspired Heman to write and record and pray this prayer? It means, if nothing else, God is not the God of those who can put on plastic smiles and say the right things, who can hide behind good theology. God is the God of real broken people, and God seems big enough to be able to know we get like this when we're in darkness. That God can handle our questions. That God's not scared away by our irreverence. That God's not startled by our honesty. You see, what this psalm shows us is that when life is really hard, you have permission from the Bible to go to God and tell him that life is really hard. In fact, you know what this psalm means? If you're a really godly, mature, believing, varsity Christian, you know what you do when life gets really hard? You weep, and you wail, and you mourn, and you lament. I don't know if you think that there's some kind of super spiritual response where nothing fazes you, and you're like Superman, and the bullets bounce off. When the bullets hit, you know what Christians do? They weep, and they wail, and they mourn, and they lament, and they raise their fists to God in reverence, and sometimes without perfect words, and say, God, where are you? You see, this one singer named Michael Card, he said this, it seems to me that we do not need to be taught how to lament. What we need is simply the assurance that we can lament. I think he's right. When you're in pain, you don't need to be taught what to say to God. You simply need to be taught that you can say it to God, that you can go to God with your pain. You see, when you're in pain, the Bible's answer to you is not get over it. The Bible's answer to you is go to God with it. When we meet someone in depression, we want to know, how do we get them out of this pit? And it doesn't seem like that's God's only posture. In fact, the psalm is saying, not get over your pain, but go to God with your pain. And let me tell you, 7 Road, that's what's the most amazing thing about this psalm. You know why this psalm is a nightlight for those in darkness? Because it shows you something. It shows you that despite what human is going through, He's going to God. One writer wrote it better than I could say it, so let me just read it for you. He says this, Cloudy as this psalm seems, we shouldn't miss the most obvious point Yes, the psalmist says his soul is full of troubles, that his life draws near to the grave, that he feels like a dead man, like he's like one who's forgotten, that it seems to him as if God has isolated him in regions dark and deep, that he feels like he's drowning, that he can't escape, that his life is a horror, that he's cast down, that he's unheard, that he's afflicted, that he's shunned, but he's telling all of this to God. That's Psalm 88. You hear him? He's crying, he's screaming, he's kicking, he's wailing, he's exaggerating, he's protesting, he's shaking, but he's doing it to God. No matter what comes, he will not leave God. He will go to God. You see, what believers do is they fall apart, but they fall apart Godward. They fall towards God. They pass out towards God. They, they fall apart, but they do it Godward in direction. That's what Psalm 88 shows you. You can kick, you can scream, you can wail, you can cry, you can lament, but you do it Godward. It's towards God. It's not that believers don't get depressed, but they fall Godward when they do. He's crying, he's complaining, but he's also saying, I'm not going anywhere but to you. You're going to hear my complaints. You're going to hear my cries because I am not stopping coming to you. I I find so much in that. I find so much in that. It's like when you remember there's this one scene where Jesus says a really hard thing and a bunch of people leave him. And then he turns to his disciples and he says to Peter, Do you want to leave also? Do you remember what Peter says back? Peter says, You have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? You know why I love that? Because I don't know exactly what he meant or what he was thinking, but I feel it like, Listen, Jesus, if there was an alternative to you, I really think I would consider it sometimes. If there was somewhere else I could go, I would consider it. If there was another option, I'd really look into it because following you is incredibly hard. And sometimes you don't even have the decency to let our hearts know that you're near. And so if there was somewhere else, I'd go, but where else should I go? You're God. That's what Heman realizes. I'm I'm I have nowhere else to go because you're God. Whether I feel it in my heart or not, you're God, and I'm not going anywhere. Like a toddler that's having a temper tantrum but still is wrestled within the arms of a parent. So is Heman, throwing his fit, exaggerated. You've never been good to me from my childhood on. You've never once taken care of me. But he's right there within dad's arms, and dad is not letting him go anywhere. You see, that stubborn, won't let go of God no matter how bad it gets, when that happens, God is actually doing something incredibly great in you. Let me tell you something I heard from a sermon by Tim Keller. He says something brilliant that I I couldn't stop thinking about. He says, the times of darkness are supreme opportunities for God to turn you into something great. Now, what does he mean? Here in Psalm 88, Heman is holding on to God, still praying, still doing what's right, still worshiping, still leading God's people, even though, don't miss this, he's getting nothing out of it now. He's not getting anything out of this relationship There's no prayers being answered, no circumstances being changed. There's not even the decency of the nearness of God in his heart. He doesn't feel God, see God, hear God, nothing about his circumstances changing. Heman is not getting anything out of this, even though he's still doing the right thing. Now, what's this about? What, What does this mean? Keller says, it's sort of like the story of Job, another sufferer. And when the story of Job opens, what's the story? Satan comes to God and essentially throws down a gauntlet, a challenge to God. He taunts God. You know what he says? You want me to consider Job, your your righteous servant? What's Satan's challenge? Does Job worship you for nothing? And here comes the taunt. Of course he worships you because you answer his prayers and you bless him and you promise him heaven and you listen to him and you're kind to him. Of course he worships you. And not just Job, but the test is all the God worshipers, all the people who so quote, quote, believe in you, they do so because they get something out of you. And, and his challenge, his taunt is, don't you see, you're just a means to an end for them. You're not the end. You're just, they're objectifying you. They're using you. They're mercenaries, not worshipers. They're using you to get what they want. And so the challenge is, I'll prove it to you, Satan says. Don't listen to his prayers anymore. Throw him in darkness. Don't even give him the sense of your nearness or your love. And I promise you, he will curse you and die. That's the taunt. And yet, if you know the story of Job, what happens? And the truth is, Keller says this simple point. The truth is, when we think about it, what's the answer? Is Satan right? Do we use God to get what we want? And the truth is, I think all of us know we start off that kind of superficial. But the darkness has this power to transform us in some ways. Because in Psalm 88, Satan is defeated. You know why? Human's getting nothing out of this. No prayers being answered, not even the nearness of God, and yet he will not let go of God. And Keller makes this simple point. The darkness is when you have a choice where God comes to you and essentially says, now we'll finally find out whether you got into this relationship to serve me or to get me to serve you. When nothing's coming, when there's nothing you're getting out of it, no benefit from this relationship, no prayers being answered, not even the sense of God, now we'll finally know whether you got into this relationship to serve me or to get me to serve you whether I'm a means to an end or I'm the end itself. See, there's nothing like the darkness to begin to turn you into a person that wants God just for God. Where you're not the means, you're the end God. And you can say with other psalmists, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the portion of my heart and there is nothing I want besides thee. Let me end by saying this as you hold on to God through the darkness, whatever it may be, there is something you today sitting here at Seven Mile Road know that Heman had no idea about. Can I tell you, you're in a better place than Heman was. You know more than Heman did. You know why? You know something that Heman never knew. The two darkest Psalms in the whole book of Psalms, Psalm 39, Psalm 88, 39 ends by saying, turn your face from me because it'd be better if, if you didn't look at me. And Psalm 88 ends with, and I'm in darkness. The two bad Psalms ends with God's face turned away and being left in total darkness. And you know something that Heman didn't, that both these Psalms, though describing what it feels like for us, none of us have ever really been through. But these Psalms were pointing to one sufferer, One sufferer from whom God did really, truly turn his face. And one sufferer whom God really did truly leave in the darkness. Would you listen with me again to Matthew 27? In verse 45, as Jesus Christ is on the cross, it says this, From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama that is, my God, my God, why have you turned your face, forsaken me? You see, Heman never knew something you know, which is that the very God he was shaking his fist at would be the very ones who could pray his own prayer better than he could ever pray it. Heman never knew that from the cross, Jesus could have said Psalm 88, more faithfully and more true than Heman could have. He never knew that Yahweh would take on flesh. The very ears that heard Heman's prayer would would take on ears and become flesh. And that Jesus from the cross would be the one who could truly say, Psalm 88. He's the one who could truly say, as it does in verse 6, God, you have put me in the depths of the pit, the regions dark and deep. That Jesus is the one who could truly say to the heavens, your wrath? lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Lying on the cross, he could quote 88 and say wave after wave after wave of your wrath and your hatred and, your, and the guilt and sin of the world is falling on him. He choked and drowned and died, not as Heman felt, but in reality. Heman felt like he was in darkness. He wasn't. Jesus was. Heman felt like God's face had turned away. It didn't, Jesus, it had. And so Jesus has gone through Heman's worst nightmare so that Heman wouldn't. And so that you wouldn't, and so that I wouldn't. You see, because of our sin, God did turn his face from Jesus. And God did leave him in total darkness. And because of that, God will not take out on you what he has already taken out on Jesus. Jesus took your place, took your darkness took your abandonment and isolation in your place for you and your sins and your sorrow so that no matter what you're going through, God's word to you, whether you feel it or not, is I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I am with you in that valley and in that pit. I, In fact, I climbed into the pit and made the darkness my own. And you know what? You know something Heman doesn't as well. In the middle of this psalm, he's shaking his fists at heaven and he's saying, let me ask you, Do you do wonders in the land of the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is there a choir in some grave I don't know about? And we at Seven Mile Road get to go, Heman, actually, yes, there is. Because he went through the darkness and came out on the other side. And now there literally is a choir on the other side of the grave. And there is a concert of praise in the land of the departed. And Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead so that human's worst nightmare, even itself, might be transformed, which will lead us into the greatest thing we have ever known. So here's what I simply want you to hear. Will dark times come to godly mature believers? They will. And so even godly mature believers get depressed. And when life gets really, really hard, You have permission from the Bible to go to God and tell him that life is really, really hard. But friend, in the darkness, hold on to God because he is not a means to some other end. He is the end. And God is turning you into someone great, into someone who defeats Satan himself and shows off that God is more valuable than any prayer that's ever been answered in my life or not. May that be our story as well. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in mercy you would come by your spirit and convince us that you're near if simply for the fact that you've given us this psalm, this day, this morning. So for every grieving and hurting heart, I pray that Psalm 88 would be a nightlight for them in their darkness. For every sufferer, we pray that they would know that Yahweh knows their pain, has entered their pain, and has took on the greatest of all darkness. We pray, O Lord, that you would give language for us to express our hurt to you and the assurance that we're safe to throw up our wails and our complaints and our mourning to you. And We pray, O Lord, that the light of your hope, that there is a choir on the other side of the grave, would give us the strength to endure every circumstance, to know that because Jesus came to the end of darkness, darkness will not be the end for us. The dawn will come. Resurrection will happen. And we will be eternally with you before your face and in your light. Let that hope hold us now. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.